Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You've tuned into Freedom of Species, bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals, uh, including animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and appreciation. The program is broadcast in Melbourne from 3CR Studios and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via 3CR and the Freedom of Species websites. And all podcasts are on iTunes. I'm Emma Townsend. Today we are playing a talk from Deakin University's Dr Ewan Ritchie on predators and how important they are in our complex uh, ecosystems. We hear such things as your enemy's enemy is your friend. What fire management has to play in the encouragement of native species reduction how our treatment of predators in Africa is actually preventing children from getting an education. And we also hear how if we leave our dingoes alone and stop shooting and baiting them, they can solve our feral cat population issue for free. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Today what I want to talk about is predators and I want to talk about how crucial they are to our world and how they can actually help us with a whole range of major issues that society is facing right now. Now I should say that this work um, is a team effort so um, many people are thanked at the end of this uh, presentation. So we all know, or many of us know, that we have a huge problem in the world right now and that is the extinction crisis. So species are disappearing from the world at alarming rates. Typically, Normally, we expect to see two or three species disappearing per year. That's what's called the normal or background rate. But there's now estimates up to 100 or 10,000 species per year going extinct. And this is what we refer to as the Anthropocene. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is that we're losing habitat. So this is a picture of Dubai, and you can see we've lost habitat here. But we're also losing species from pristine landscapes. For those of you who've been to Kakadu National Park, you would recognise these waterfalls. And as Australians, we have a particularly bad record here. So we're probably the worst um, performing conservationists, if you like, in the world for mammals, having lost 30 species in the last 200 years. And, of course, many of our mammals that still survive are also hanging on by a thread. So it's, it's true to say that our mammal conservation record is deplorable. And the question is why? Why are we losing so many species? And two of the reasons we think for this are the impacts of introduced species, particularly things like feral cats and foxes, but also the loss of species. And I'll talk about that as well later on. So it's true to say that humans have an uneasy relationship with predators. If you're this person in a kayak, of course, a great white shark sitting right behind you 
might give you a little bit of a source of um, concern. But in fact, we really shouldn't worry about top predators very much at all because the numbers are stacked in our favour well and truly and not in a good way. <laughs> so large mammalian carnivores, whether that be bears, whether that be wolves, large cats, have declined substantially around the world. We're talking about 95 to 99% in many parts of the world. And the same goes for the oceans. Sharks have declined by more than 90% in many areas. So we have lost a huge number of both species, but also from the area that they used to occupy. And I'd really like to sort of emphasise this point right throughout the talk, and I think this quote captures it perfectly, that when we lose a species, so when a species becomes extinct, that is a tragedy in itself. All species have a right uh, to survive, aside from what humans, what values we place on them. But one of the tragedies, that, or potentially the greatest tragedy, is that when we lose a species, we lose what that species does in the environment, how it interacts with other species, whether that be plants, animals and other organisms. And this is captured really well in that quote. And I'm going to emphasise this point right throughout the talk. So what are the really important roles that large carnivores like the lions, like the bears, etc., have in our environments? <clears throat> there are two main effects they have. First of all is that large carnivores, being predators, run around eating things. So if you're a wolf, as an example, you're going to eat lots of deer. And deer themselves have negative effects on plants. So if you're a plant, of course, your best friend is a wolf because it's keeping deer numbers in check, which means that plants can survive and grow. And, of course, if you're a songbird or a reptile or something depending on those plants, then, of course, your best friend as well is the wolf because it's preserving that habitat for you. Another really important effect that top predators have is actually controlling other predators. So as an example, if you're a dingo, you might do a really good job of controlling things like cats and foxes, otherwise known as mesopredators or mesocarnivores. Now, they're smaller-bodied predators that sit below these top predators in the food chain. And these predators actually have a very large effect on small animals. So if you imagine you're a bilby or another small native mammal in particular, you are at risk from fox predation and cat predation. And so your best friend, of course, in that sense, is the dingo. And this works off the idea that my enemy's enemy is my friend. So dingoes, by killing cats and foxes, actually indirectly help things like bilbies. But when they disappear from systems, we have what we call mesopredator release. So the large carnivore disappears, and the mesocarnivores, who are previously suppressed by that large predator, then explode in their numbers and then have a really large effect on those native animals. And these native animals down here, these small animals, they're really important in the system too. Things like bilbies run around, spend a lot of their time digging holes in the ground. That digging, we now know, is really important for things like seed germination and seed fertility, uh, soil fertility. So when we lose these animals from the environment, again, we lose the important things that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis in those environments. And that's really important to keep in mind. To illustrate just how important these apex or top predators are, this is some work that I <coughs> summarised with a colleague of mine, Chris Johnson, and we looked around the world and just asked a really simple question. When you see an increase in an apex predator, so usually when it's restored or you compare where an apex predator exists to where it doesn't, what's the effect on the mesopredator? So on the y-axis, all that is is just a change in abundance of the apex predator or the mesopredator. And hopefully from what you can see from that is that even with a really small increase in a lot of cases of the apex predator, there's a huge decrease in the abundance of the mesopredator, on average a four-fold effect. So for a one-unit increase in the apex predator, there's a four-fold decrease in the mesopredator. 
Now, what this means is basically that you don't need very many apex predators on average in a system to have a really big effect, a profound effect. And I'll get again to why this will be in a second. You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. We are listening to a talk by Dr Ewan Ritchie on predators. And Ewan is explaining, amongst other things, that how incredibly effective these predators are at the top of the chain. And when there are small changes in their populations, that has profound effects on the species living below them in the chain. But of course, predators pose problems too. There is conflict. So if you're a sheep farmer, of course, dingoes pose a risk. It is true that dingoes kill sheep to varying degrees in parts of Australia. And you can go to places like Western Queensland and Western New South Wales, and you can see this situation right here. It is fair to say that there is absolutely a war on dingoes in parts of Australia. So you can see scores of dingoes hung up in trees because farmers um, see them as a threat. They kill them. And they're making a statement here that they don't like dingoes. Now, the question is, how can we accommodate livestock grazing and biodiversity conservation at the same time so we can avoid situations like this but actually help both, both groups of people and both, groups, both interests, if you like? Another thing I'd like to emphasise is that things are complex. They're not as simple as you might think. <clears throat> so this is some work that I was involved with in Fenniscandia, so Norway, Sweden, Finland, etc. In this system, we have two top predators, the wolf and the lynx, a very large cat, and they indirectly benefit smaller prey species like hares and grouse, etc. They suppress the red fox. Now, the red fox in many parts of its range is invasive and it suppresses uh, already threatened species, the Arctic fox. When wolves and lynx have come back in Sweden, which they're doing right now, they're starting to bring down fox numbers. Now, you might think, well, that's a great thing because it means that the Arctic fox, as an example, will be a winner out of that. But it's not as simple as we might think because the red fox itself has been doing a good job controlling another invasive species, the American mink. So when the red fox numbers go down, we might expect that the American mink could actually benefit from that. But that's contingent on whether there's otters in that system because otters, another native predator, do a really good job suppressing American mink. So all I want to do to um, sort of convey to you is that if we manage one species without ignoring, sorry, with, when ignoring all the others, um, we can have a whole range of things that can occur that we wouldn't have predicted. So rather than focusing on single species, we need to focus on communities of species. And that will be the way we have much better outcomes in conservation. So just why are predators so important? <clears throat> Again, this is some work reviewing the importance of predators right around the world. So you can see on the left here, we have sea otters, we have dingoes, wolves, pumas, and lions and leopards. And we have species that have increased as a result of the decline of that particular carnivore and species that have declined. So if we use a sea otter as an example, Sea otters have declined substantially in parts of their range, um, historically because of um, fur hunting mostly. And when sea otters decline, <clears throat> we see a large increase in sea urchin numbers. And that has the effect of removing kelp. So sea urchins eat kelp. Now, lots of uh, species in the ocean, of course, are dependent on kelp, whether it be fish, whether it be uh, shellfish, etc. They require that kelp to live in. It also turns out that kelp is incredibly good at storing carbon. 
Kelp is one of the fastest growing organisms on Earth. It can grow, I think, up to 30 centimetres per day, and it can suck in huge amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. So it turns out that if we actually keep sea otters alive, we can help reduce the impacts of climate change. So you can see by just keeping one species in the system, you can have effect on a whole range of other things you might not have thought about. Pumas and wolves are really interesting in this context. We know that they both do a really good job of controlling deer numbers. Now deer, as I've already said, have an impact on vegetation and that affects things like birds, uh, mammals, reptiles, insects that depend on that vegetation. Another really important thing to think about is that if you have less deer numbers, you have less people having road accidents in North America with deer. That is a huge problem in North America. It kills people and causes hundreds of millions of dollars damage for the insurance um, industry. So by having these top predators back in the system, you can actually save lives on the road, quite literally. People often think, well, predators are interesting animals, they're wonderful animals, um, and we'd ideally like to keep them in the system. But if we lose them, what does it actually really matter? You know, it won't affect me personally. But this is a really interesting example, I think, from Africa where leopards and lions have declined substantially from where they used to once live. And it turns out that these animals are really important in controlling a species, the olive baboon. <clears throat> olive baboons, for those who know, are quite large animals and can be quite aggressive. And what's happened is that when these cats have declined, these baboon numbers have increased substantially and two really important things have happened. Humans are getting sick more often because they carry these lovely parasites in their stomach, which are then transmitted to humans because of the close contact between increasing baboon numbers and humans where they're living. And also, they're raiding people's crops. So baboons are actually coming into areas, taking people's food, and then the locals themselves are actually having to keep their children home to help defend the crops, which means children actually are deprived of getting education. So you can see, just by getting rid of leopards or lions, kids don't go to school. It's an amazing uh, situation there by, again, one species disappears or two species disappear and you see a whole range of effects right throughout, affecting humans in this case too. And this is some other work just to um, demonstrate that this happens in all systems. This is in the marine system. This is some recent work that we just published, which essentially just shows that if we lose predators from the marine environment, again, we're less able to fight the impacts of climate change. So it turns out, as an, as an example, that sharks do a really good job of keeping things like dugong and sea turtle numbers <coughs> in a natural balance. And if these turtle numbers and dugongs increase dramatically, they remove things like seagrass, which means that you can't then get as much carbon being stored in these seagrass habitats. And these marine habitats that you can see here, whether it be mangroves, salt marshes or seagrass, are really important for storing carbon. About 1% um, of the marine environment is made up of these habitats, but they store about 50% of the marine environment's carbon. So they're actually more important than the Amazon rainforest in terms of storing carbon, which up until recently was underappreciated. So I now want to shift to a local example of how not only predators affect prey, native animals, but also how they might interact with some of the things we're also doing in the environment, in particular fire, which of course is a um, very important thing to think about in an Australian context. And this is work done by a PhD student of mine, Bron Radsky. So I've already said that we've lost many native mammals. So these include things like the crescent nail-tailed wallaby, pig-footed bandicoots, desert rat kangaroos, etc. They're all extinct, regrettably. 
but we still have many native mammals that are holding on. And these are animals in what's called the critical weight range, essentially animals that are small enough to be at risk of predation from things like cats and foxes. The question is, how do they survive and how can they be maintained? So we can think of it like this. A stable population consists of gains and losses. We have births and immigration, so animals moving into areas. We have deaths and emigration, so moving out of areas. They're balanced. But what affects deaths? Disease, predation, starvation. And in terms of predation, in Australian context, red foxes and feral cats are particularly important. And they can increase the amount of death in these systems to the point that the losses outweigh the gains and bye-bye bandicoot. So we want to understand this in a bit more detail. So what affects predation? The biology of the species, the environment that they're living in, interactions between species potentially, predator abundance of course, and shelter is a really important one. When we burn an environment of course, we remove vegetation, we remove cover, shelter for those animals that need that to escape from predators. So therefore things become more available, so native animals become more available when you burn an area. So we wanted to ask this question looking at fire. So we had some simple research questions, how to introduce predators respond to planned fire. So these are management burns being done as part of the 5% burning targets in Victoria. And how does this affect native mammals? So for those of you who know Victoria, this work was done in the Otways region, which is southwest um, of Melbourne. And we had an area that was um, burnt as an experimental treatment and an area that wasn't burnt with the same habitat and a distance of eight kilometres between them, so they're separated. And we had a range of sites where we looked at mammal activity through camera traps as well as scats and also looked at the effect of topography as well. Being a mammalogist, you spend a lot of your time looking at poo and using camera traps. They're some of our most um, common ways now that we actually survey mammals in the environment. So what we did essentially was we used scats of predators and also camera traps and vegetation surveys to record native mammals as well as predators before the fire, before the planned burn. And then we looked at exactly the same thing after the fire to see what the effect of that fire was. So let's look at what's happening before the fire to start with. And don't worry about the details of the graph too much. All you need to see is that for both the red fox and the feral cat, that with increasing understory cover, so more cover, more shelter, you had decline in the probability of fox and feral cat occurrence. So basically they don't like too much cover. So what does fire do to habitat? Well, of course, it removes habitat, it burns it. So 65% of the area that was scheduled to be burnt, burnt, and that's because, of course, when you put a fire through a habitat, not all of it burns, it's patchy. So what we need to do is compare before the fire to after the fire for our three treatments. That's the control site, the impact site that wasn't burnt, and the impact site that was burnt. So we have to compare within those treatments. And hopefully what you can see is that there's natural variation before the fire, which can be for a whole range of environmental reasons, climate um, variation through for the months, etc. But if you look at the impact site that was burnt after the fire, there's a dramatic decrease in cover, 83% um, reduction in cover after the fire. So what does this do? Well, first of all, let's look at predator occurrence. So this is again before the fire and look at after the fire. In the burnt site, you can see there's a huge increase in the probability of occurrence. So foxes pour into these burnt areas after the fire. 
and the same is true for cats. So if you compare before and after, you can see not much change between the control sites and there's a little bit of an increase in the unburnt site, but there's a huge increase in the burnt site. So again, the implication here is that following a fire, cats and foxes move into those areas and they're obviously looking for something and we'll get to that. So what happens for diet? And we've only got information on foxes because unfortunately cats are very annoying and they bury their scats so we can't find them very easily, but foxes are very nice. They leave them on the ground, very obvious places so we can look at fox diet. So this is what foxes eat before the fire. About 55% of their diet is made up of wallabies. 18, so nearly 20% is made up of what we call those critical weight range mammals. 10% is rodents, and then not pepperoni, but about 10 or a bit more than 10% is actually uh, berries, seeds, insects, etc. So foxes are quite generalist predators. But the important thing to ask and to look at is what happens after the fire. Hopefully what you can see here is that there's a big change in the proportion of their diet. They're still eating the same things, but they've changed the amount of what they're eating. So there's a three-fold increase in the amount of critical weight range mammals that foxes eat after the fire. So the implication here is that, of course, you put a fire through a habitat, you reduce cover, foxes move in really quickly, and those animals that still survive that fire are then consumed and eaten in much larger numbers than before, presumably because they've got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, because the fire's removed all their cover. So again, if we go back to our conceptual understanding, we can look at the effect of fire. It decreases shelter for animals, predator abundance, activity, so that is you know, how active predators are in that area, increases. The relative availability, therefore, of those native animals increases to the foxes and cats. So predation goes up, deaths goes up, and unfortunately, again, it's bye-bye bandicoot. So you can see how fire and predators interact. Okay, so now I want to expand this out and look at the role of Australia's um, sole remaining native top predator, that is the dingo. And remembering back to earlier on, there's sort of two main effects that dingoes can be expected to have. One is on herbivores, and particularly kangaroos in Australia. Um, also goats could be put in that equation, but also those mesopredators, foxes and cats. And these other animals have effects <clears throat> on other things in the system. So kangaroos, as an example, reduce vegetation cover, and cats and foxes can affect small vertebrates, invertebrates, so those are small mammals, reptiles, etc. Another interesting interaction here between kangaroos and cattle. When you have less kangaroos, you have more food for cattle, the cattle are in better condition, which means they're more um, less likely, sorry, to be susceptible to dingo predation because mothers are in good condition, they'll defend their young. When there's less grass, they're weaker, they go further the food and they have to often leave their cars behind. That's the exact time that dingoes can actually take advantage of that. So you can see there's a bit of a feedback going here. If we leave dingoes alone, they do the job for us by keeping kangaroo numbers in check, which is good for the cattle farmers and, in fact, good for the dingoes and kangaroos, the whole system. It's an interesting um, uh, I guess idea that not many people have sort of really focused on in terms of how we might manage all those species together. So how do we do this? Um, I was really lucky between 2008 and 2010 I got to run around a lot of Australia as you can see from this map and we compared sites where we had two large cattle stations, one where dingoes were killed and ones where they weren't um, but everything else was the same. So the habitat was the same, they were both cattle stations so they both had cattle on them so everything else was the same except for their treatment of dingoes. And we did this um, in a large number of places across Australia. So Cape York in sort of wetter forests, right out into this sort of arid centre, <clears throat> deserts in Western Australia, the Channel Country in southwest Queensland. And we used a range of techniques to look at the effects of dingoes 
or not dingoes um, on other species in these areas. So camera traps, sand pads, um, driven surveys for kangaroos, the works. An interesting question though to point out just quickly is what is Australia's most damaging pest? And often people would refer to camels, cats, um, toads, foxes and rabbits and there's no question these species have an impact on the environment. One thing we don't often think about though too is native species. When native animals themselves become overabundant they can have a huge impact on the environment. You have too many kangaroos in an area, you have less cover, you have less regeneration of plants because they're constantly being grazed. And of course, who controls kangaroos really well? Dingoes. And to show this, this is some work from across from Northern Australia, from 50 sites in Northern Australia. <clears throat> and you can see this is the abundance of kangaroos here on the y-axis. Baited is where um, dingoes are poisoned, so 1080 baiting. This is where they're not being baited. And you can see there's a big difference there in terms of the abundance of kangaroos, more than double um, the number of kangaroos uh, on places where dingoes are being controlled. And you can look at this another way. If you're a farmer, farmers often think of kilograms of animal per hectare or acre, etc. And you can see how many kilograms of kangaroo you're going to have if you kill dingoes versus how many kilograms you have if you leave them alone. So there's a big difference there. So the implication here is that dingoes, of course, are killing kangaroos because they eat them, of course, and that keeps their numbers right down, which has these other benefits we've already discussed. Now, what's interesting here is we can look at um, other groups as well, so birds, reptiles, insects, and small mammals. And again, we're comparing unbaited, so that's where there's lots of dingoes, to baited places where there are few dingoes. And you can see, again, there's a big difference. One of the ones that's probably most interesting to you is insects. Well, people often think, well, how can insects be more abundant in the presence of dingoes? But if you remember back to what I said before about top predators controlling herbivores, which benefits plants, that all of a sudden makes sense. Because if you have more plants, of course, what, one of the groups that um, is most dependent on plants are insects. So you have more insects because there's more vegetation. And if you think about that a step further, the groups that are um, heavily dependent on uh, insects, of course, are reptiles, birds and small mammals. They all eat insects in very large numbers. So you can see by having dingoes in the system, the whole system is benefiting from the presence of those dingoes in the system. You take them out and, of course, a whole range of species are negatively affected. You are tuned in to Freedom of Species. We are in the middle of a talk by Dr Ewan Ritchie. He's now going to tell us about how predators really manage ecosystems very well because they set a landscape of fear. So don't be scared. Listen up. Another really important thing, though, I want you to bear in mind is that behaviour is really important. So it's not just abundance of one species in relation to another, but also how they behave. And this is often referred to as the landscape of fear. So that is, if you're a cat down here, you know that your worst enemy is a dingo. Because if you are found in an area and a dingo rushes out and you've got nowhere to hide, that dingo may very well kill you or seriously harm you. So you're gonna do your best to avoid interactions with dingoes in the environment. So you'll go to areas where dingoes are less active um, either in time, so at certain times of the day, or in space, so in certain areas of that habitat. Um, Gary Larson has probably best represented the relationship between dogs and cats over here. We know dogs and cats don't get along very well. And we can see this actually with science. So here's dingo abundance on the x-axis, and you can see cat abundance on the y-axis. And you can see that with an increase in abundance of cats, sorry, of, of dingoes, cat abundance declines. So this is in the Kimberley. But what about the behaviour? This is work done by a PhD student of mine across a whole range of those sites I showed before in Australia. 
And you can see this is from camera trapping work. And on the x-axis here, we have number of dingoes seen per night at a camera trap. So that's these are cameras placed in the environment, animal walks past, it takes a photo. And this is on the y-axis, the number of feral cats seen at those same cameras. Now, all I want you to um, take out of this is you can see that there's a triangular relationship here. And what this is showing is that dingoes are capping the number of cats that occur at particular areas in the environment. So once you have more than one dingo per night, you have no cats, okay? When you have less dingoes, you have a lot of variation. And that makes sense because not just dingoes control cats. You know, cats need to have food, they need to have other things in the environment. So you can have a, um, lots of cats or very few cats. But the point is that once you have lots of dingoes, you never have lots of cats. So they're actually helping to cap the number of cats in that environment. Now, another really interesting thing that we found out from Layla's work is that dingoes control the number, sorry, not control the time at which cats come out during the day. So here we have, again, areas where dingoes are being left alone, so unbaited sites, and areas where dingoes are being controlled, baited sites. And this is sunset and sunrise. So this is a 24-hour period. Feral cats in the light and dingoes in the dark. Now, you can see in an unbaited area, dingoes are most active around sunset and sunrise. And that makes sense because they're hunting kangaroos at the time, which also have the same activity pattern. They come out and they're most active dawn and dusk. And kangaroos are dingoes' preferred play. Whoops. And you can see here that cats are most active at the times when dingoes are not. So you can see they're coming out much later in the night. So if you took a line from here, this is roughly midnight, one, two in the morning. Cats are really active then. But hopefully what you can see is when we go to a situation where dingoes are being controlled, all of a sudden cats have changed the time that they come out. So rather than coming out late in the night, they're coming out just after sunset, okay, because dingoes have shifted their time when they're most active to avoid interactions with humans. And what that means is that if you're a small mammal or a gecko in the desert and you often come out just after dusk because it's still warm, the insects are active, you're feeding, Feral cats have the advantage now. You're active and so is the feral cat. So the feral cat has a much greater chance of catching you because dingoes have been excluded from that area. So you can see how behavioural changes are really important. Cats and dingoes are still in the same area overall, but the way that they're moving around in relation to each other has changed. And if you want to know just how bad the cat situation is, this is a back-of-envelope calculation done by a colleague who worked out roughly that if you were line up semi-trailers from Sydney to Grafton, which I think is about 600 k's or so, and you filled each one of those semi-trailers to the brim with native wildlife, that is essentially what cats are estimated to kill per year in Australia, which is why we have such a massive issue with the loss of our native animals right now, and there's a huge focus on trying to control cats. The question is, what's the most effective way to control cats? Is it poisoning and shooting, or are there other ways of doing that? So how do we actually take the science and put that into practice for conservation and management? How do we conserve species like the southern brown bandicoot that can be seen on our um, back, back doorstep in places like Cranbourne on the outskirts of Melbourne, which is threatened by things like cats and foxes? You might think, well, the most obvious thing to do is to rush in there and go and kill feral cats because they're bad news, right? Well, actually, that's probably one of the worst things we can do without thinking about it more carefully. It's an interesting study came out of Tasmania which showed that when people killed feral cats, there wasn't a decrease, but an increase in feral cat numbers. And that's because when you kill animals in an area, 
you actually reduce the number of dominant individuals who control territories and other individuals can move in and feral cats can move very quickly and they can breed very quickly. So they actually saw a quick response to culling of an increase in cat numbers rather than decrease. So we can't just assume that poisoning and shooting animals is always the best solution to reduce their population size. Sometimes it can be the worst thing. <clears throat> and we also have to remember those interactions between species. So Western Shield was a program to control uh, foxes and it was very successful. But unfortunately, several years after foxes were controlled quite successfully, all of a sudden cat numbers started to increase dramatically. And the implication there is that foxes were actually doing a really good job of controlling feral cats. They were killing feral cats because they compete. And what happened there was that once the cats increased, species like the woylie, which is a small little macropod, a small wallaby type animal, decreased substantially because of cat predation. So again, we can't just kill foxes or we can't just kill cats, assuming that's a good idea, because if we don't understand the interactions, there can be a whole range of unexpected consequences that we wouldn't have predicted. <clears throat> so the question comes back to how can we have our biodiversity and livestock predation cake? So how can we have our cake and eat it too at the same time? So should we keep doing the same things that we've been doing or should we think about different ideas? I'm sure many of you have probably seen the movie Oddball, which is based on maremmas or guardian animals as they're most commonly known. So here's a maremma up in northwest Queensland protecting sheep against wild dogs. And here's a dog in Namibia protecting goats against leopards. So these animals are incredibly effective at um, excluding uh, wild dogs or other predators from areas. So the livestock grazing can still make um, a living, but at the same time, you don't have to go and kill your native predators. So ideally what we're looking for is those triple, triple bottom line solutions. So there's a um, social benefit, an ecological benefit, and also talk about an economic benefit as well. And it's also really important to note that graziers themselves are seeking non-lethal solutions. Graziers don't like killing animals. Most farmers, most graziers actually go into that um, very business because they like animals. And many of them actually hate the idea of having to shoot and poison dingoes. So if we can provide a solution, such as guarding animals, um, we can have a win-win. Um, and again, going back to the cat example, where it was shown that uh, killing cats in that case was a bad idea, the same thing is also now turning out for wild dogs. So work from northern Australia shows that when you um, shoot um, poison, etc., cetera, uh, dingoes, rather than seeing a decrease in their numbers and their distribution, you often see an increase. And that's, again, because we're destabilising those populations. So dingoes are essentially very similar to wolves. You have a classic pack structure. If you start breaking that down, you have more breeding, you have more movement of individuals, so you actually have an increase rather than a decrease. And often what you also end up with is a very young population of dogs who don't know how to hunt very well, who turn their attention to things like livestock rather than hunting kangaroos. So you can actually see we've got ourselves in this vicious cycle where we poison because we see there's an effect of dingoes on livestock and then it gets worse, so then we just keep doing it rather than stepping to the side for a second and saying, well, can we do this differently? Are there other solutions? And, of course, I just mentioned that guardian animals provide, I'd argue, one of our best uh, ways of moving forward. So we can actually have these animals protecting livestock, but at the same time we can have our native predators in those systems. Um, so, again, it's a win-win. <clears throat> and I mentioned before the economic benefits. Some great work came out of Adelaide which showed that if you're a cattle grazier, that <clears throat> you are actually far better off having dingoes on your property than excluding them. And that's because of this impact on things like kangaroos. So kangaroos at certain times, particularly droughts, can compete with livestock for food. 
And if you don't have many dingoes, you're more than likely to have lots of uh, kangaroos and probably feral goats in some areas as well. But if you have dingoes, their numbers will be much lower. So <clears throat> overall, you're much better off having dingoes on those properties. Even if you occasionally lose a couple of calves, you're still going to be way better off having dingoes than having to constantly control uh, <clears throat> goats, kangaroos, and also suffer stock loss because of those uh, impacts I talked about before. So again, this comes back to understanding how the whole system is working, but also factoring in the full range of both costs and benefits of what our management might be. So what I'd really like to sort of start finishing up with now is actually looking at systems rather than single species. So much of what we do, unfortunately, in pest management is focused on single species. So we see a feral cat and we want to get rid of them and we go and do that. And then there's all these unintended consequences. We're ignoring these complex interactions that I've talked about. And this is relevant for Victoria. As an example, we've just removed, or as far as I know, very close to removing um, completely red foxes from Phillip Island. Now, this can be seen as a good thing, and it is, except that we know that red foxes suppress cats. And we would now expect to see feral cat numbers increase quite dramatically on Phillip Island. And there is anecdotal evidence that that's exactly happening. Now, if we just look at mammals as an example in Australia, and we can think about both native and invasive, so introduced species, in many parts of Australia, dingoes, foxes, cats, rats, mice, rabbits, goats, deer, pigs, kangaroos and wallabies can all interact to varying degrees. So as an example, if you go and kill dingoes, you might expect to get more goats, more pigs, uh, more deer in some areas, potentially more cats, more foxes, etc. But if you go and kill foxes, you might get more cats. You go and kill cats, you might get more rats. So we can't just look at a single species without understanding these interactions. <clears throat> and another really important thing to think about is how can we actually improve the situation? Now, don't worry about this diagram. This is what we um, refer to in the trade as a horrendogram. It's quite complex. But really all I want to talk about is that when we understand how to manage a system, we can look at the community effects or the habitat. Now, if we look at the example of feral cats as an issue, we can go and kill feral cats with poison and shooting, etc., to try and benefit things like small mammals. But actually, one of the best ways to preserve these small mammals is not to focus so much on cats, but focus on removing or not removing that cover that I talked about earlier on. So if we can get on top of our fire management, on top of our grazing pressure, so um, keeping that at a sustainable level, not too high, not logging forests, etc., that means the habitat's more complex, there's more cover, which means it's harder for cats to hunt things like small mammals. So that's a major way we can actually improve the situation for native animals. And likewise, of course, if we know that dingoes are doing a good job controlling cats, the worst thing we could do is go and kill them because that's actually indirectly making it better for cats to hunt these small mammals. So how can we move from what we've been doing currently to what we're doing now? <clears throat> and this brings us to what's um, referred to as rewilding which is happening right around the world, particularly in places like Europe and America. So we've got bears here, we've got lynx, uh, wolves and wolverines. And these animals are now moving back into areas that they haven't been seen for for a long time, in some cases over a century. This is a wolf here, if you can see it down here, that recently appeared in the Netherlands, hadn't been seen for over 100 years. Lynx are moving back into parts of Sweden and other areas as well. These animals are moving back into areas where they once occupied and we'd expect them to start having these effects that we've talked about. Being top predators, we would expect to see the species that were being previously affected by them should start coming down in numbers, which might have benefits in some cases. So rewilding is being pushed as a way 
of treating um, the symptoms, sorry, treating the causes of these um, problems rather than the symptoms. And I'll um, illustrate this as an example, a, a local example here with um, <clears throat> the Tasmanian devil. And I just want to sort of make the quick point that, you know, we've been trying to control pest animals for a long time with various techniques. And unfortunately, our native wildlife continues to decline towards extinction. Um, I think it was Einstein who might have said that the definition of insanity is to repeat the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Unfortunately, that's what we often do with a lot of our management. So one of the greatest risks, arguably, that our wildlife face is risk-averse management. People get really worried about the idea of bringing back Tasmanian devils to the mainland, but they are a native animal. They would have been in places like Wilson Promontory less than a few thousand years ago. So if we know, as an example, that Tasmanian devils can control things like cats, um, but probably also things like wallabies, which have increased uh, to levels where they're having an effect on vegetation, why not bring these animals back? So we're working with nature rather than against it to treat the underlying problems. Killing cats is treating the symptoms, but the cause is there's no top predator there. So if we can bring back um, the Tasmanian devil or inside the Mallee, we bring back dingoes to control things like feral goats and kangaroo numbers, then we can have a range of benefits and arguably a long-term more effective solution because once devils and dingoes are back in these environments, they'll be performing these services 24 hours a day, seven days a week for free. Okay, so we don't have to do anything. They'll start controlling these animals and we don't have to then keep going and intervening all the time. And I will leave it there. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that presentation. Uh, very thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, we're happy to have a, a discussion with you. You can type them in now. Um, so we might just get to, to one here that's already come through. Uh, Vanessa has just touched on that, that point you're making about burnt areas. And she's asked, aren't predators more detectable in burnt areas too? Yep, um, that is a, an excellent question and it's, it's possible. Um, we've looked at that uh, with, with our data that we, I referred to earlier on. Um, the way that we set up our camera traps, um, there's a lure in front of the camera trap, so the detectability should be relatively similar um, because you're using a camera trap. If you were doing, say, a visual um, observation of an animal and you were just sort of walking through the area, of course, it would be much easier to see the predators in a burnt environment than compared to uh, sort of a, a thicker forest. But that's, yeah, that's a good point. I'll just give it one more minute to see if anyone else has have a question to ask. I know it takes a few minutes to type in. While we're um, waiting to see if that happens, just to remind you as well that the recording will be available. Um, it only takes us about a week to put that up online. Uh, we have to transcribe that one. And if you have any feedback or any further questions after today, I know there was a lot of information to take in, so you might be... Um, thinking about things afterwards, you can email us. It's deaconalumni at deacon.edu.au or um, Ewan has provided some different ways to connect via Twitter and things afterwards as well. So uh, we've already had some comments, people saying that they'd like more conservation webinars, so we've heard that one. Thank you very much. I've got another question here from Daniel. Are there any current plans for trial locations for the introduction of Tasmanian tigers in Australia? <laughs> uh, first, we need to find some living Tasmanian tigers. Um, sadly, they're extinct. So um, maybe he might mean Tasmanian devils. Um, and there certainly has been a push 
for bringing back Tasmanian Devils, uh, particularly places like Wilson's Prom and Barrington Tops in New South Wales. Um, and I think that would be an excellent idea. Many colleges are backing that idea. Of course, it would need to be done in a very controlled way, so we wouldn't just grab them and let them out and hope for the best, um, but within sort of small fenced areas to start with and see how they interact with other animals. And assuming that went well, then we might expand that. Great, thank you. And um, we've got another one here uh, from Wendy. So how, how are you planning to convince farmers that introducing dingoes, Tassie devils, etc., is a good idea considering the negativity on wild dogs already? Yep, uh, an excellent question. And that really touches on social factors as much as um, ecological factors, if you like. And I guess, first of all, I'd like to make the point that there's actually many uh, farmers already who are backing this idea because they, in fact many of them are already doing it. So many farmers that I know of in certain parts of Australia already have dingoes on their properties because they know they control things like feral pigs or kangaroos or goats. But <clears throat> for others it's certainly more challenging because they've been doing, um, they've been controlling dingoes for many generations um, and that's what you do. But I guess if we can start um, showing people more of the economic arguments, which that work out of Adelaide is showing that, and the ecological benefits, that's one thing. But I think there also is a real role for government here with policy and encouraging farmers to make that switch. So rather than continuing to invest in things like fencing and poisons, you could actually assist farmers with things like guardian animals. So allocate some of that money to maremmas, as an example. Donkeys, as it turns out, are really effective at um, excluding dogs too. If we can help encourage farmers to make that change, um, I think that's another way forward. But, yeah, there's a huge uh, role here, I think, for social factors and understanding the importance of those um, so that we can sort of make some of these changes. Excellent. We have a few more minutes, so you can still type in questions as you think of them. Um, Peter's asked, is anyone studying rewilding Cosios Cove? Uh, not that I know of. I'm not sure exactly what Peter's got in mind in terms of rewilding Cosios Cove. I guess, I mean, dingoes would be in, in and around that area anyway. Um, and I guess it's important when we talk about rewilding that we're talking about reintroducing species that are already there, whereas other people would think about rewilding with sort of more ambitious ideas and controversial ideas like bringing back the mammoth to Siberia. So um, when we refer to rewilding, we're really talking about bringing back native animals to do what they do rather than trying to, I guess, bring back already extinct animals because, you know, there's a sort of an ecological reason for that as well, quite different. So Derek's asked, or oh, said, these insights are largely unknown by the broader community. What plans do you have to publicise this vital and eliminating research? <laughs> um, we're hopefully already doing some of that, but obviously we're not doing the job well enough because the message is not getting out to everybody. Uh, many of us do spend considerable time on things like the conversation, uh, doing media and getting the word out there, but certainly things take time. I always use the analogy of plastic bags. Um, when you used to go to the supermarket, you know, 10 plus years ago, everybody had plastic bags and it was normal. Um, now if you go to the supermarket and you have a plastic bag, you're sort of weird <laughs> um, and people look at you a bit strangely. So um, I think these things take time. Um, we need to keep um, education um, and obviously with education, I think it's fairly clear that you start early. Um, so we need to talk about the role of predators in schools and how that's really important for the environment. And I guess um, the more evidence that accumulates and the more we communicate that to the wider public, then ideally, um, that will sort of start to filter through to decision-making and government policy, et cetera. Kane's asked, I'm just going back to this one, sorry, quite, quite a few questions coming through now, which is brilliant. Um, are there any government-based incentives for using companion animals 
rather than trapping and baiting for stock protection? If is it second part to this? If not, is this something that could be explored as a means to stabilising bingo packs for the many ecological benefits that you've mentioned? Uh, that's an excellent question, Kane. I'm not sh sure, and I don't think there is a program, unfortunately, that doesn't that sorry does allow farmers to sort of start using guardian animals. But I think it's an excellent um, idea, um, one that I'd certainly support because, as I said before, we can continue to invest in fencing and poison and shooting. Um, and they will have a role for things like feral cats on islands where you can eradicate cats successfully. Um, but in large areas of Australia, which can be remote, hard to access, I think often that sort of pest control is ineffective and certainly not a long-term solution. Whereas if we can have things like guardian animals on the landscape, we know that actually provides a longer-term solution. So, yeah, we need a lot more of that. But my understanding is, unfortunately, there's not very much of that going on at the moment. But that's, again probably something we should be really advocating for based on science um, a lot more. Fantastic. Uh, question from Megan. Introducing predators sounds like one solution in rural areas, but this would be very hard to do in urban and peri-rural areas. Has there been any examples of this? Yeah, that's another really interesting question about how do you sort of get animals back into areas where there's um, lots of humans. And I guess the reality is that we're probably not going to have dingoes running around the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Um, there's an interesting idea there, though, that people have talked about things like uh, bringing back quolls. Um, we know that we have a problem. So quolls are um, sort of carnivorous marsupials, um, cat-sized animals, um, and they're really good at eating things like rabbits, um, also rats um, and mice. So we could actually entertain the idea of having these animals in urban environments where they might have a benefit. Um, so I guess the point of that really is that we would have certain uh, native animals coming back to areas that there was most gain was likely. So you can't have Tassie devils running around um, <coughs> in the city because they're just not going to survive. Um, but certain animals actually could do quite well in even quite urban environments. So I think it's really sort of a case-by-case -case basis. Next, so Anthea's got a good question, quite different to the other ones. Um, without wanting to get into a Batman versus Superman argument, <laughs> Would a devil, which I thought were, sca were scavengers more than hunters, defeat a cat in a fight if they met in Wilson's prom, or would the cat have sensed the devil's presence and avoided the area? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and it's probably a bit of both. So a lot of people have this um, idea, I guess, that devils are only scavengers, and it's true that they're excellent scavengers, but they're also quite good hunters, people don't realise. So they can actually pursue animals for a long time and hunt them um, that way as well. But... You touched on the point that they actually scare things, and I think that's something we really need to remember, that a predator doesn't need to kill things to have a big effect on other animals. So I used example before, I think, of, you know, cats and dingoes. Cats are not all being killed by dingoes, but they're avoiding areas where dingoes are because they're scared of them. So if you put devils back into Wilson's Prom, you would expect to see cat activity and cat use of Wilson's Prom go down because cats are going to start using areas less because those devils are there. And the other really important point to remember here is that dingoes or devils or many other top predators, they're not going to completely remove red foxes or feral cats. Um, that's very unlikely. But what they are going to do is bring those red fox and cat numbers right down to a point where things like bandicoots and bilbies, et cetera, can now survive because there's not too many red foxes and cats. Uh, Jackie's comment. 
We didn't really touch on the issue of small feral herbivore control, um, e.g. rabbits, and how that can influence predator numbers and their impact on native wildlife. Controlling rabbits may lead to prey switching to natives by cats. Uh, do you have any comments on that one? Yeah, that, another great question. And the rabbit uh, issue is a, is a really tricky one because uh, rabbits actually inflate uh, cat and fox numbers um, in certain areas. So cats um, and foxes, and indeed even dingoes, um, really like to eat rabbits. Um, and so, but particularly in the case of foxes and cats, um, their numbers can build up quite substantially on uh, rabbit numbers. And of course, when rabbits then inevitably crash, which they often do, then those foxes and cats start going looking for other food. And so, I guess one of the things we could consider is if we can control uh, rabbit numbers. Um, would we start to see cat and fox numbers come down through time? Now, you might see, of course, an initial impact because there will be some prey switching when that rabbit numbers go down, but maybe long-term overall that might be a good thing. But again, this comes back to understanding the system. In certain areas, we might not want to do that because the rabbits, in fact, might be protecting other animals um, from being eaten. So you imagine uh, bandicoots, as an example, out around out of suburbs of Melbourne, these bandicoots are living um, in areas of Blackberry, um, really close to suburban areas, and in the open areas there's rabbits as well, and the foxes are probably eating a lot of rabbits. Um, if we run in there and kill foxes, we could expect cat numbers to increase, and if we also ran in there and killed rabbits, we might expect those foxes and cats to start looking for other food, and they'll turn their attention more to bandicoots. So we have to understand the whole system. Uh, Rebecca's asked, do you think societal disconnect from nature and a fear of predators is a considerable barrier to conservation? I think any disconnect uh, with nature is a problem. Um, people often refer to what's called nature deficit disorder. So that is that, you know, children in particular, but even many adults now spend very little time in the natural world. So, and it's true to say that, you know, what you haven't experienced, you're less likely to connect with. So, you know, if you don't have a personal experience with wildlife or an environment, you're le potentially less likely to value it. Not always, but um, certainly it's probably not a good idea. So I think there's a real role there, therefore, of actually um, getting animals back into the environment. And I think that's another reason for rewilding is that it inspires people. Everybody wants to see a bear in the wild or a lion in the wild, <laughs> ideally from a safe distance. But these animals are really are inspiring animals. And of course, we want to have them back in the environment. So yes, I guess there's a bit of an impediment there, but we can turn that around into a positive and talk about the wonder of these animals and actually get people back into environments and see these animals that should be there. I've got time for a few more. So we'll go, um, Wendy, dingoes and dogs interbreed. So is it going to be easy to keep pure breeding of dingoes? Ah, yes. So the issue of purity in dingoes is a really contentious one. Um, and my response always to this is that it's, it's, it's a bit of a, um, a red herring in the sense that the purity of the dingo is a focus that I'm not sure we actually need so much because the reality is that if we leave dingoes alone, they'll very quickly revert to being dingoes, um, whether they be 99% pure, 80% pure, 100% pure. Most of the dingoes that you see in remote regions that are left alone look like a dingo, smell like a dingo and act like a dingo um, because selection, so natural selection, is favouring that type of animal. So really all we need to do is leave dingoes alone and they will very quickly revert to being pure, inverted commas, and being dingo-like animals. But really what I'd like to focus on is what those animals are actually doing. So rather than looking at an animal and saying, well, is it pure or is it not pure, ask the question, what's it doing in the landscape? So if it's 80% pure, um, 
but it's behaving exactly like a dingo, then I would argue that animal is really important to keep in the landscape. Likewise, if it's 100% pure. So the purity issue really is contentious, but really all we need to do um, to avoid interbreeding between dingoes and um, you know feral dogs is really just to stop killing dingoes because that actually contributes to the problem by breaking down these pack structures, destabilising them. We're more likely to see interbreeding between dingoes and wild dogs. If we leave them alone, we'll see less of that. We might do two more, I think, and then we'll be about out of time. Daniel's question. Politicians have in the past made calls to allow people to keep native animals as pets instead of introduced species. Most of our native species don't have the same sleep patterns as us, though. Is it possible to have bilbies instead of rabbits, bandicoots instead of cats? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great question, and I'm an advocate of keeping native animals, but not all of them. Um, some will be better than others. As an example, people keep sugar gliders in America, but um, I think it's you can't actually do that in Australia. Um, People have proposed keeping quolls, so quolls might be quite a good replacement for feral cats, or sorry, domestic cats. Um, so I think there is an actual opportunity there, <coughs> pardon me, to keep some native animals as pets um, instead of um, introduced animals. But yeah, to sort of assume that we can keep all native animals as pets, um, I don't think that's probably realistic for the reason you just said. All right, we'll do one more from Steve. Um, if, de if devils were introduced to Wilson's Prom, would you expect to see a reduction in small, small prey, such as native mice and reptiles? Would devil numbers find an optimum level within a few generations? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and that's, that's the trick, of course, of doing a reintroduction. You don't know exactly what's going to happen, which is why you have to do it in a very controlled way. Um, what we'd expect to see happen when we put devils in is that we'd expect herbivore numbers, so things like wombats and wallabies, which are very abundant in Wilson's Promontory, and many people could argue too high. Um, they should come down because devils eat both of those. We'd also expect foxes and cats potentially to come down in the numbers too for the reasons we've discussed, which should theoretically indirectly benefit those smaller animals that are affected by those um, red foxes and cats, but also by the herbivores, because the herbivores are eating the vegetation, which therefore makes it easier for cats and foxes to find them. So by putting that uh, devils, that top predator, back in the system, we expect to see some benefits. But before we sort of just let devils out run, running around loose, we'd have to do that in a very small area first to see what the effects are on those small animals, like you mentioned. Um, and I guess if they're overall positive, then you would expand that and try it in other areas and larger areas, but you certainly wouldn't rush out there and do a huge area to start with. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. That completes the talk by Dr Ewan Ritchie called Putting the Bite Back into Conservation. There was some good news during the week. Apart from a great start to the footy season, Etihad Stadium has ditched Cadbury Dairy Milk Chocolate for vegan cruelty-free Panna Chocolat. Uh, the results of a parliamentary inquiry into basically uh, breed-specific legislation were out and basically they're saying to scrap them because 
you know, if we really want to bring down dog attacks, it's we've got to really uh, look at deed, not breed. After 19 VCAT hearings and hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent by local councils because of this legislation, they called for a parliamentary inquiry and the results have been in. These breed-specific legislation laws are a waste of time and money. Well, we're going to leave you now to enjoy the rest of your Easter Sunday. If you'd like to contact Freedom of Species, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter or the website. Thank you very much, Dr Ewan Ritchie. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.